0: Take your Bible. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. And this is word of the Lord. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. There are a few activities that we do, Lord, that display our frailty as well as the preaching of the word. How quickly we have our minds wander. How human we are in the worst of ways now. And we ask that your spirit would be active. Be active in the preacher. Be active in all of us that the words of life would be proclaimed, that we might hear, understand, and believe. Oh, Lord, may our lives be different. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine a situation that is partially imagined situation is it's carolinas it's beautiful outside like this it's been nice it's been wonderful all summer you've had the windows open you've had the back porch open you've had the uh, sliding door open and the weather begins to turn cold is that first real cold snap of the fall and all of the creatures begin to freak out and it's at that point where you're sitting on the couch and you look down, and right as you see it to base of your feet, might get a chuckle here, you see the little snake. Again, it's mostly imagined. <clears throat> you don't have to ask Lori about this later. Um, now the imagined part of the story is is when you look down at the snake, all you see are red, yellow, and black. All right, so we can tell the people who grew up in the Carolinas at that point when you hear the grunt or know their uh, herpetology or whatever, uh, because you know that that is actually the coloration of both the most dangerous snake and the least dangerous snake in the Carolinas. It is either a king snake, which you could play with to your heart's delight, and they will bite you and it'll be fine and you'll just be irritated, but you'll be okay, or a coral snake, at which point you will meet Jesus. They're very ill-tempered. They love to bite and they love to give you venom. You now, if that were to be your imagined situation, you were to look down at your feet, it would matter a world of difference to you if you could remember which one is which. Now, again, if you grew up in North or South Carolina, you have the little song in your head and so you know Right? Red and yellow, kill a fellow. Red and black, friend of Jack. You've got it in your mind. So you can identify, oh, this is one that's safe to pick up. Or, oh, this one will kill me if I touch it. It's all about identification. It doesn't really matter that it's a snake. Who cares? It really matters what kind of snake. And it's all about identification. Can you determine if it's real or if it's fake? Can you determine if it's poisonous or if it's safe? Can you determine which one it is? This is a large part of the the situation that John is in many ways confronted with. Remember, this is one of the later books that's written in the Bible. It's written towards the end of his life. He's one of the really old fogies of the church. It's written like 30 years after the Corinthian letters. Uh, And persecution has settled in and settled in dramatically. And the church is having to wrestle through, how do we exist in the face of persecution? How do we exist it's only going to be a short number of years after this where the first major church split is going to happen. And the first major church split, for those of you that have studied church history and love esoteric things, it happens over: What should we do with the people who denied the faith? What that was happening is people were, were claiming to be Christians. They were being brought in by Rome, and Rome was saying, "If you deny Jesus, we'll let you go." If you do not deny him, we'll feed you and your children to the lions. And they're really hungry this week. And some Christians, Polycarp, that's the young uh, intern of John at this point that he's writing in, the the young Polycarp, when he's an older man, 15 years later or so after this, he says, send me to the lions. And he's murdered right there in front of the entire Colosseum. Killed, and if I remember correctly, it's the last time anyone's ever killed by the lions. But a lot of people are like, it's my kids, man. And so they, they, they deny the faith. And then the, Rome lets them go, and they go home, and they go into hiding for a little bit. They run away for a little bit, and then the shame sets in. And then they have to figure out, what do we do with the church now? Because we've loved Jesus all along, and here we've denied him. What do we do? and they try to get back into the early church and it's interesting you know what the early church says no no I'm sorry you had your chance you denied Christ you're done and similarly we, I mean can, can we discuss Peter momentarily <laughs> and they said it was different for Peter you had your chance And the early church wrestles through this question of what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to look like a Christian? How can we tell the difference between a king snake and a coral snake? And what do we do with those that have denied the faith? And the church actually splits over it. And there's a group that says no. And so they leave and form their own early church. And there's a group that comes later that says, "Eh, it's fine. We'll take you back. Even though you might be a Roman spy, we'll never know. That challenge is already beginning to show up as the early church is wrestling through. What do we do? What do we do? And so a lot of this book is old Grandpa John writing to the church to say, I'm going to help you identify if you are a Christian or not. I'm going to help you understand if you are a Christian, I'm going to help you be able to make that dividing call, are you or are you not actually a Christian? It's a large part of what the book is concerned with. And here we've had in verses 5 through 10, this tremendous explanation of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. That there are two types of entities in the world. There are those of light and there are those of darkness. God is light. Sin is darkness. And if you are in God, you will be filled in some way with light. And verse 9, this is just profound confession here. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is so faithful that if we confess our sins to him, his redeeming work in Christ is so mighty, it's so powerful that it will both pronounce us innocent and then cleanse us from sin. It removes the original problem, the, the hatred of God, the unreconciled, Breach between God and man, and then also changes the lifestyle. And here John turns to his first kind of introduction of this theme of the division, that dividing line, that sifting process. How can we determine what a Christian is? Our first kind of theme that we're going to look at, principle, is It is the design for Christians to be godly. My little children, this is, again, think of Grandpa John here. This is not young John who's faithful to Jesus, not uh, humanly his best friend. Weird to think about, but this is Grandpa John, old man. All of the rest of them have been murdered at this point. He's one of the few that are left. Kiddos. Kiddos is probably how I would have written this, right? It's a term of endearment. Family of God, people of the Lord. I'm writing these things to you. Whole purpose, whole goal, what's his mission, what's his idea, thesis statement, as much as John's going to give in terms of structure. So that you may not sin. It's part of the design of Christianity to be about the business of godliness. It's interesting, I, find, I mean, here is the old man processing life as he's staring down the end of it. He's looking at a world church that by this point is beginning to spread throughout the entire known world. They think evangelism by this point has already probably made it to the far side of India, might all the way have made it up to the UK by this point. Massive amount of evangelism. And he's saying, look, what do we need to talk about? Well, I'm writing so you can be a successful Christian. And what does a successful Christian look like? One who does not sin. And I find this to be intriguing, particularly in our current culture, our current Christian culture and current era of the church, where so much of Christianity in this nation, for my childhood, was simply a way to avoid punishment and hell. I mean, that's how I was evangelized as a kid. I remember the churches. I remember my beloved Sunday school teachers talking to me, trying to persuade me to love the Lord God, to respond to the gospel. But so much of was leveraged was the life to come. And that is absolutely true. That is part of what Christianity is. If you don't want to go to hell, Christianity is the only solution. True story. But interestingly, as the church has changed and as postmodernism has kind of really sunk its claws into the Western culture, we've replaced even the idea of the get out of hell free card with something much, much different. The scriptures, preaching, and the church have been reduced to the role of the therapist. Your best life now. How can you get rid of that internal turmoil on the inside, that cognitive dissonance, the, the "Ah, I struggle with who I am in my world and I don't know what to do. Ah, how can I feel differently? How can I be differently? How can I be some sort of psychologist about myself? I think it's interesting. You can see so many ways this has played out over the handful of years, really just in my lifetime in ministry. The emphasis on spiritual gift tests. Not to say they're wrong, I mean, they could be very helpful. But the overwhelming emphasis on them why? Because it's all about figuring out who you are and how you are, it's all about getting inside your mind. One of the big things now in the seminary world, you cannot graduate from a conservative evangelical seminary anymore, it seems like, without having to do a massive personality inventory. Because all figuring out who you are and how you work with God is really interesting. Because it's not about therapy. It's not about your best life now. Though those are, I would say, certainly secondary byproducts. It's not even about getting out of hell, though that too is a wonderful secondary byproduct. I'm, I'm happy I'm not looking forward to hell. But the very essence of Christianity, if we're going to boil it down, what, what, is, what does salvation accomplish? That you may not sin. It's interesting, I mean, how much this mirrors the ministry of the Lord Jesus. I mean, you have to think John is the old man sitting there. He's you know, got his arms kind of crossed as he's contemplating what can he write to the early church. And he's going back and he's remembering the ministry of Christ and how he would heal somebody. And interestingly, he heals them. And what does he say? Go and sin no more. Oh, wow. It's, it's almost like Jesus had this idea in his mind all along. That the design of what Christians are, who we are, what this thing is to be, is to be getting rid of sin. And I'll be honest with you, our culture hates this right now. I mean, the Western church hates this right now. As a session, we always are studying a book. We try to make sure we're always intaking and ingesting and challenging our minds. The book we're reading right now is written by a PCA pastor. And his whole argument is we've lost the idea of holiness because it's not particularly fun at first. I mean, I know this growing up in the South. We we lost the idea of holiness because in order for us to be holy, we have to be comfortable informing others and ourselves that what we're doing is wrong even if it feels good. We have to be comfortable having our own feelings hurt if we're going to grow in godliness because honestly, I don't like to be told that I'm wrong. That a thing, a practice, a habit that I think is okay is actually unbiblical. I mean, just as a great illustration, to pick your average PCA pastor that's in a church of, filled with a, a broad spectrum of humans and ask them what their f- least favorite things to talk about are. It's going to be interesting. They're going to say, one, it's going to be money. And two is other people's children. Because, interestingly, what will Americans not tolerate being touched? You can't tell me how to spend my money, and you can't tell me what to do with my kids. Which is interesting, because the Bible does that on both, with great regularity. But it's interesting, I mean, it's, a, it's a, a, a thing that you, a land you only step into with fear and trepidation. we've lost kind of in some sense this, this obsessive compulsive drive for godliness. And it's crazy because that's actually the way this nation was founded is people that were being persecuted for that obsessive compulsive drive for godliness in fact, actually, they were so particular about godliness that people started to mock them, and they called them precisionists, but nobody liked that term because it didn't stick. It didn't have a good ring to it. So they changed it to, well, you're Puritans because you're obsessed with purity. Now They had other failings. I'm not going to ignore those. I'm not going to talk about them right now it's interesting we've lost that as a nation though our, our church here in the West in America we've, we've lost the idea that Christianity is at its core designed for godliness and if you aren't actively cultivating godliness you're doing it wrong I mean honestly if we're going to talk about it if we're going to emotionally wrestle through this we have to think well I mean that's a little bit offensive at its core I mean, the idea that the very thing I'm introduced to with Christianity is that I have to cultivate holiness and it's not really optional. That the very thing that happens when I'm ushered into the faith is that God has claim to all of my life and he gets to tell me what to do in all of my life. And I no longer have the right and privilege to be the determinant of my own values, ethics and decisions. And honestly, I mean, if we're going to be clear about that, if, if the essence of Christianity is godliness, it should only take us a moment to contemplate our own heart to be like, wow, this is a problem. I mean, because if, if I'm going to hope in anything, boy, I can't hope in myself. I mean, look at my own track record. Look at how I feel about godliness. Look at how you feel about godliness. And I love how John kind of reasons through this. And he's like, look, this is what Christianity is about. It's it's about being freed from sin. I've just told you in two verses previously, being cleansed from its guilt and its power. It, it, you have this full removal of it. But if you're going to hope in something, hoping in your ability to conquer sin is dumb. I mean, that's really quite silly. Because honestly, many of you, when you came to know the Lord, you had decades and decades and decades and decades of proof that you couldn't do it. And interestingly, some of us, having been converted early on, we have decades and decades and decades of proof that even with the Holy Spirit within us, sometimes we still can't do it then. And so what does he do? He goes to the rock solid foundational truth in verse 2. He is the propitiation, the payment, the atoning sacrifice, the one who has solved the guilt and problem of sin. In fact, actually, he's so powerful, his redeeming work is so great that it fixes not just us, but it fixes the whole world. That doesn't mean universalism. It means, second kind of theme here, if you're going to keep track, first is that uh, the essence of Christianity is godliness. But our only hope for godliness must be in Christ, because he is that powerful. To think of him having salvation that is so comprehensive, it doesn't just spread to us, but it covers the whole world. And we think about it, and we we sing this with great regularity, but we forget that we sing it. Because we get so excited with the tune, and it kind of makes us sweat a little bit, because we might have to hit notes that were a little bit higher than we're comfortable with, and it kind of starts that way, with joy to the world. He comes to remove the curse, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. It's in your head now. You'll be thinking it all day, won't you? You see, this is why you trust in Christ, because his atoning work is so great that as far as the curse goes, it's how far his redemption goes. Which is pretty spectacular to think about, because what is cursed? Well, the devil is cursed, and Jesus is going to conquer him. Already has. It will be done fully later. But then with Eve, what is cursed with Eve? Well, childbirth is cursed. So parenting is going to be miserable in some fashion. I hear teenagers make that happen. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Latter part of the curse given to Eve is that relationships themselves are cursed. Right? You will crave your husband and he will rule over you. The curse given to her is specifically a curse of a power struggle. Relationships for you, Eve, will now be marked with power challenges that has never been marked with before. Well, I okay, mean, honestly, if we could just take the curse away from those two things, life would be pretty different, wouldn't it? I'm sure Elizabeth Knight right now will be like, it would be a lot better, <laughs> having just walked through part of it. For those of you that are married and had massive fights in the car this morning, you also are going, man, it would be a lot better. You'll be thinking that when you have a massive fight in the car on the way home. <laughs> but then the curse that's actually given to Adam is far worse, isn't it? What's cursed for you, Adam? Work? Oh, man, really? That's what I spend so much of my life doing. Is that why every time I put in eight hours worth of work, I only feel like I get five hours worth of yield? Yes, that's exactly why. And then the ground itself, the very fiber of creation itself is cursed. Decay. Entropy. Death and destruction, part of that curse, things wearing down. His redeeming work is so great, that aspect of the curse is even undone. For those aging in the room who have the aches and the pains of growing less young than me. You feel that. That internal tension of, I feel the product of the curse. My body hurts. And honestly, body hurts are real, but they're even less for most of us than the heart hurts that we carry with with us regularly. And to say anywhere that that pain, anywhere that that harm, anywhere that hurt can go, Christ's atoning work is bigger than that. I love his thought process here because he says, look, the essence of Christianity is godliness and therefore I'm not even going to try to hope in Christians because half the time they're bozos. I'm going to hope in Jesus and Jesus alone because only Jesus has a redeeming work that covers all of creation itself. Only Jesus has a redeeming work that's so great that he can promise as part of his second coming that he will consume all of creation with fire and make a new one that's better. Oh, I look forward to that. I look forward to the new heavens and new earth where we labor without curse to serve the Lord. I suspect there'll probably be animals there of some kind, nothing like what we have here. I look forward to those. I look forward to seeing exactly how God's creativity works and what it looks like in a world without a curse. I look forward to being an inventor. I'm not very creative at all. I look forward to being able to invent things and think of things without having the ability to think of evil. Oh, how fun will that be? to be able to just sit and ponder and it not be possible to create evil in your mind. He is the payment for our sins. He is the redeemer of God's people, but his redemption covers the entirety of the world. Our family spreads through every tribe and nation and tongue and time, and we will have that to look forward to so you can follow his thought process christianity the essence of christianity is that of godliness designed for godliness therefore we must hope in christ who is the author of salvation but then the next thing is is we may then begin to hope in what he is doing in us because he changes our very nature All right, two, he's payment for our sins and all the whole world. Three, by this we know that we have come to know him. So how do we know that we know God? And not just like a knowledge of God, not know about him. Remember, Satan has that. He is, I would suspect, he knows data-wise far more than I do about God. Because he's been in his presence in a way that I haven't, really interestingly. You think about that data-wise. And he, it's all hatred and unbelief, but he has more data. By this we know that we have come to know him, that we have fellowship with him. If we keep his commandments. Okay, well, back to the same theme again, that designed for Christianity is godliness. Whoever says, I know him, I know God, I love God, I'm his child, I'm related to him but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth, and this is where you begin to see John's turning that point, is the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. God's love is, is at work in the people of God and as they grow and as they are developed and as they are sanctified, God, who loved first, works His love out through them and in them. How is it that the saints can be godly? It's because they have that new nature, that loving nature of God inside them and so it will just bubble over. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So if you are resting in Christ, the attributes, the lifestyle, the decisions of Christ will be contagious. They will contaminate you in the best of ways. And we all have, uh, not all, but most of us, I assume, would remember the fad, the what would Jesus do fad, um, which is really in many ways a nightmare uh, and was written by a guy named Charles M. Sheldon, who was uh, liberal. uh, And in many ways, his theology was suspect in in its own right. But actually, he, he did actually raise an interesting question along the way. What would life look like if I actually behaved the way I'm supposed to behave? It's based upon a book that he wrote called In His Steps, where Sheldon actually followed the life of an invented character who actually committed himself to obeying the Lord in everything. And it's from there that he asked the question, what would Jesus do? It's a terrible question. The better question is, what would Jesus have me do? what would Jesus command me to do? It's a much better question because Jesus is the Lord of life and he's going to die on the cross and I never want to do that because I'm not the Lord of life. He can atone for the sins of others. I can't do that. So what would Jesus have me do? But Sheldon contemplates the question, what what does the world look like if the people of God actually devote themselves to the new nature they have? If they act according to who they are. A transformed nature is the foundation of Christianity. How is it that we can say Christianity is supposed to be about godliness, that you may not sin? Well, you know what? Your sin nature has been taken away. I mean, you have the lingering corruption of it, the lingering little bits and pieces left behind it would be the equivalent of saying that, we'll, we'll use a, make up a ridiculous and silly illustration, but it would be very similar to like, if in my study, in the back of the building, y'all decided to play a very hateful prank on me, and you filled it this full with glitter. <laughs> Again, hateful prank, hateful prank. Hateful. The defining nature of my study would be that of Glitter. It would be everywhere, right? <laughs> but let's say I went in and I cleaned out the glitter. I brought trash bags and hazmat suits, and I took the glitter and I put it into trash bags and I carried it outside and I got it so that you could see the carpet and the table and the books and the plants and the pepper plants growing in the window very badly and you could see everything that's in my study. Would the nature of my office still be that of glitter? Glitter. Well, no, the nature won't be, but you know there's going to be glitter everywhere, right? (laughs) Every time I read a book for the rest of those books' existence, there will be glitter in the book. It'll be amazing. None of those books were even open while the glitter was in there. They made it in the pages. (laughs) Unbelievable. The pepper plants, I'm sure there'll be glitter all, glitter will be everywhere. But it's interesting, it would no longer be the defining element of my office. You wouldn't be able to, you'd be able to get into the room because the large majority of the glitter is out. It would now be a study again. It would be a very glamorous study, but it would be a study again. (laughs) This is, in essence, the nature of the Christian is to say, look, the the giant bulk of the glitter has been removed. We are now uh, creatures that are designed for holiness. But you know what? We do have the lingering glitter corruption. It still stains. But interestingly, if you want to know what a Christian looks like, it's someone who is godly because their nature is one of godliness. Now, we can apply that very quickly. Going back to the snake illustration, if you have the snake curled up right down at your feet and you look down and go, oh no, is this a king snake or a coral snake? I have to make the decision between the two. The early church having to make the decision between the two. Interestingly, what do they choose to look at first and foremost? Are these people godly people? And interestingly, is that a fair point to do? And according to John, absolutely. Now, he's not going to stop there. We're going to get a second one next week. Uh, But he's not going to stop there. But absolutely. It's exactly what we're supposed to do. We are, as uh, Christians, supposed to look at our own actions to say, Do I look like a Christian? Do I honestly look like a Christian? We all know those stories of people who get saved because they have starting to ponder what God's work in them has looked like and as they think about it they realize I don't live this way I don't, I don't live anything like this in fact the only thing that pours out of my heart is evil I must only have an evil nature and the Lord comes in and redeems them it also is why if you maybe never thought about this why the role of church discipline is so important in the church because what happens is when you join the church, you give what we call a credible, a believable profession of faith. And interestingly, that profession of faith is only as believable as your lifestyle would let it be. Let me be the equivalent of like me saying, oh, I hate caffeine. And then every time you see me, I'm drinking a Coke. <laughs> You say you hate caffeine, but I really don't believe you anymore. Because every time I see you, you're consuming it. I hate sin, but every time I see you, you're doing it. I really have to wonder, do you actually hate it? Because I don't, I, don't, I don't think you do anymore. In fact, actually, in many ways, that's what excommunication is. It's a declaration that, look, God's people have a new nature, and the new nature will produce godliness. And we just don't see it at all. It's important for us to remember this, that this is the new nature of the Christian, and godliness will leach out. It will seep out. It will be... The thing that you come away with, you just can't be any different. It's like when you go to the coffee shop and you come out and you you take your jacket off, you leave it in the car, four days later you come back and you pick up your jacket, you're like, wow, how is the coffee smell still there and still so strong? It's infused, it's part of what it is. There is a problem with what I'm saying though. And some of us in here, honestly, if we're really convinced that we're living well, probably haven't sniffed it out yet. I imagine, though, in a room this size and knowing you, there's probably four or five tender souls in here that are already wrestling with. But you know what, Michael? I just don't feel like I'm winning. I feel like the glitter has got me. And it's not only in the books and it's in the you know, carpet. It's in my mind and in my heart. And you know what? I actually skipped over that verse to set you up for on purpose. Because John has already done the math. He already knows that if we really wrestle with godliness seriously, there are going to be seasons where we are grossly discouraged. I mean, if you're really trying hard, if you're really pouring all of your energy into trying to be holy, there are going to be seasons where it's like, you know what? Oh, I just feel like I'm not winning right now. I'll give you a little hint. I pour everything that I am into my preaching, and there are some sermons where I walk out to the car and I'm like, well, chalk that one up as a loss. I did the best I could. It wasn't particularly excellent. There's seasons where we're going to struggle with that, where we're going to wrestle with the discouragement because we understand our new nature. We understand the power of the Holy Spirit, but we understand that we sin a lot. End of verse 1. But if anyone does sin, if you are a child of the king and you make the dumb decision, We have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have a representative who goes to God on our behalf and says, look, they're mine. I've purchased them. I've paid for them. I've redeemed them. I've cleansed them. And you know what? They were evil again. And I've paid for that too. He's forgiven us, as we saw in verse 9 in the previous chapter, and cleansed us. I recognize there are some in the room, again, particularly tender souls, some of you are struggling with the guilt of things that you did 40 years ago. If you're a child of the king, I'm going to tell you right now. He paid for it. Let it go. He forgives you. Let it go. Move on. Occupy your mind with godliness, not with failed sinfulness. How often have we done that, though, where we've, we've walked out of the situation and we've, we go, oh, I know I'm supposed to be godly. Here, let me spend my energy contemplate when I wasn't. No, that's missing the point. They're missing the point. We're supposed to be godly now and into the future. Guess what? Before you were a Christian... You were evil, and you did evil things. It's forgiven. Move on. If you're a Christian, and you've done evil things, even as a Christian, guess what? You can be forgiven. Confess it to the Lord. He'll cleanse you from guilt and power. Move on. Spend your energy today, your emotion today. Spend your mind today being occupied with Christ, His glory, His power, and His godliness. So that when we come to the table, this is what it is. It's not a table for perfect people. I can't serve it if that's the case, and you can't take it. What this is, is a table where Christ comes to his people and says, here, let me feed you, let me encourage you, let me strengthen you so that you too may be built up into greater godliness. Let me nourish the new nature in you. Which is why historically we've said certain categories of people are not welcome. One, if you do not know the Lord, you cannot feast on him. Don't take, ask me afterward. Two, if you just don't understand, this is the children in the room. We say no to them because we're afraid they will eat and drink judgment on themselves because they do not understand. Kiddos, I tell you this and I tell you this often. If you don't understand what's happening here, ask mom and dad. They have to tell you. And if they don't understand, they have to ask me to ask you to tell Third, if you are unrepentant, and honestly what that is is saying, look, I have a new nature, but I'm still clinging to my old one. I don't want the new one nourished because I like the old one. Well, guess what? Sorry, you can't can't be fed that way. Instead, repent so that he can nourish your new nature so that we may be built up together into one body, the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us now. Fill us with your spirit that we might be transformed and built up for Christ's sake. Amen.